This episode is sponsored by QuantStamp and Insider Protocol. I basically see myself as a little spider sitting on a gigantic spider web of a lot of people holding hands. And I just hang out on the spider web waiting for a vibration. And there's always vibration. So there's a lot of noise, a little bit of signal. And when I feel like there's a signal, I'll run over there to that spider making that vibration. And if it feels right, I just resonate with it. And then because there's a good trust network around me, all the other spiders that are relevant to that thing will come running over and help. And so it's basically a giant web of economic empowerment or, or just empowerment in general that becomes economic empowerment. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a new source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. In this week's episode, we're taking a bit of a hybrid approach, OG Plus episode. The thing is, we had reached out to Bill Tai, a legendary investor, startup mentor, prodigious networker, kite surfer, and passionate conservationist to be the second in our Crypto OG series. He'd be coming in on the heels of our show with Austin Hill a couple of weeks ago to talk through his decade-long journey in crypto. But Bill, being Bill, always focused on the newest, most exciting project in front of him and on boosting the people who are working on it. He came to us with a proposal. So along with Bill, we'll be joined by Danny Yang, the CEO and co-founder of Infinita, whose mission, as defined on its newly launched website, is, quote, to make giving more sustainable and scalable through NFTs and to enable any NFT to be charitable. Danny will be sharing details of Infinita's innovative new NFT drop known as OnChain Monkeys. Bill is the chairman of Infinita, which will be launched as MetaGood. In many respects, it represents the culmination of his work and passions over the years. An avid kite surfer, Bill has been intently focused on environmental causes in general and on ocean conservation in particular. In 2018, just when the CryptoKitties NFT craze was taking hold, Bill and a team of innovators launched a unique version of those kitties, a cute turtle cat known as Honu, which would be sold to raise money for projects working on marine preservation. That spawned a whole set of new ideas around how the combination of NFTs, art, cryptocurrencies, and smart contracts could revolutionize charitable work. So we teamed up with Danny and Amanda Terry recently, that's one of his partners in Bill's Acti group of founders, investors, and activists, to create Infinita. Before we get Bill and Danny to tell us more about it and describe the journey that took them here, I need to say a personal word about Bill. I'd say it's something of a journalist's disclaimer. That is to say that I regard Bill as a dear friend and one of the most influential people in my life. In fact, there's a good chance Sheila and I would never have gotten to properly know each other and thus to never have launched this podcast if not for what Bill and a few others set in motion by founding the Blockchain Summit at Richard Branson's Necker Island in 2015. I was privileged to be involved in that first event, which Bill and the folks at Bitfury generously used as a place to showcase the age of cryptocurrency, the book I'd published with Paul Vigna at that time. My appearance there led, among other things, to my meeting Brian Ford, 
the first director of the MIT Digital Currency Initiative, who then convinced me to quit my job at the Wall Street Journal and join him at the DCI. That kind of connection building and the serendipity that flows from it is the hallmark of Bill Tai's work in bringing together founders, investors, and people from all sorts of backgrounds with ideas on how to make a better world. Sometime later, I was to discover that Bill had close ties with Curtin University in my hometown of Perth, where I got my journalism degree three decades ago. Thanks to Bill and his work on an event called the West Tech Fest, I've rekindled my relationship with that college. Perth is also the hometown of Canva, the phenomenally successful design services company founded by Melanie Perkins that yesterday announced it had raised $200 million at a whopping $40 billion valuation. Bill was one of the first investors in Canva, so too in Zoom, in Dapper Labs, in Bitfury, and the list goes on. So we have lots to talk about with Bill and Danny. But before we do, let's bring in my co-host. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. So Sheila, I wasn't there for the 2018 Blockchain Summit. I'm lucky enough to have been to the previous three, uh, which was moved to Marrakesh in Morocco. That's right. Because Hurricane Maria had made a mess of Necker Island in the, in the British Virgin Islands. But you were there, and that was where the Honu project was launched. Um, we'll obviously hear about that from Bill shortly. But what was your experience with it at that time? Yeah, well, I was thrilled uh, that Honu Kitty was launched in part because, as you know, I have a strong interest in kind of how we're thinking about creating impact with the work that we do. And so I love the intersection between philanthropy and anything that we do in the crypto ecosystem. I mean, we've seen tremendous generosity from various funders. I'm thinking of things like Vitalik's major donations during the India crisis uh, around COVID with, you know, uh, making sure to fund things like uh, respiratory equipment and other things that were truly nearly hard to come by. And Honukiri for me, uh, and, and seeing that launch in Marrakesh as this combination with this collaboration between uh, Aktai and Ocean Elders and, of course, CryptoKitties was really fascinating. So I was really excited to see it. Uh, the other thing that happened that I have to say in Marrakesh was I found out I was pregnant with my third daughter. Uh, Bill was there for that. And I, so it was kind of a very exciting thing. I, kept, I tried to keep it a little quiet to people, only tell a couple of people, but it went up spreading like wildfire as these things do. So I always think of that particular summit has a very special place in my heart for a variety of reasons. <laughs> Bill, why don't we uh, just get into a little bit of this sort of OG part before we can roll Danny in here. 2010, in fact, I think if I maybe had to call up a tweet that is rather famous, this tweet, the date of which is November 24, 2010, Bill Tai. BC, that's his handle. It says, anyone using P2P digital currency, www.bitcoin.org? Fascinating potential. <laughs> Tell me a little bit about that moment, Bill. 2010. Yeah. 2010. Well, Almost that, that was, uh, 11 years ago. <laughs> that was a Thanksgiving weekend. And uh, people that know me, I'm still, I was trained as a computer chip designer and I've always been kind of a hack making stuff at home. And on holiday weekends, when I have more than a few days, those are the days where I'll build little robots or LED eyeglasses or light up miners or do whatever I'm going to do because it's fun. And the years preceding that were quite uh, seminal in my exposure to the space. A very good friend of mine is Philip Rosedale, who uh, used to be a long time ago, the CTO of Real Networks. And if everyone remembers that, it was the pioneer in audio and video streaming founded by the CTO of Microsoft, Rob Glazier. Philip and I used to snowboard together and I taught him a snow kite. And one day he said to me, you know, I want to do something different. I'm going to build Snow Crash, which is a science fiction novel by Neil Stevenson. I'm going to build Snow Crash in real life. 
And I said, well, what does that mean? <laughs> he said, I'm going to build like, you know, a virtual world, just like the book where you can drop in as your avatar and you're in your second life. And so he built Second Life. And so as Second Life rolled out, it was fascinating in so many ways because it was a pioneering application of technology and also in, quote, gameplay because it was completely unstructured. There were no rules. There were no guidelines. There was nothing to do. <laughs> you know, so you would basically create your digital avatar and you'd show up and you'd stand around. The engagement was kind of you know, off because people would build things, but they didn't really have a lot to do other than wander around, hit the space bar and fly, you know. And so one day I was sitting out in front of uh, the Paragon Bar in San Francisco with them around 3 a.m. And we were sitting on a curb, a little drunk. And I said, Philip, you know, think about Las Vegas. Las Vegas was just a bunch of sand, but now there's a big city, but there's no real like physical economy. I said, if you boil it all down, Las Vegas is one poker chip moving around with very high velocity of money. I said, if we got everybody in Second Life to sit around in a circle and we made a rule that you had to pass the one poker chip to your right a million times a year, everybody would make a million dollars a year of income. And then on that spinning poker chip, you could peel some off and build a casino. You could build a resort. You could build you know, hotels and you'd have Las Vegas. <laughs> That's what we did. And so I took the name Alan Greenspan Gollum and we, I became that in Second Life and the Linden Dollars launched and the economy flourished. And then so that gave me an exposure to cryptocurrency like 2003, four, five, six. And then as uh, the Bitcoin white paper came out, somebody sent it to me and it took me until a holiday weekend to read it. And then when I saw that, it was like light bulbs going off in my head. And I had a correspondence with Philip like, we should switch the currency over. We should go use this. this you got to look at this. And and then I was looking for people to trade with and to just get involved. And that's, that was the origin of that tweet. I've heard you tell that story before, and I've always loved it because it's made me think about where does value creation come from? And I think this idea of the velocity of money, the idea that if you create this value exchange mechanism, which is all money is, you create a cycle of it. It creates things, you know? People at the moment are looking at all of the speculation that's going on in the NFT and the crypto space generally, the DeFi world. And there's often this knee-jerk sort of cynicism, this, oh my God, it's just speculation. And it is, it's a lot of sort of speculation. But as that money moves around and around and around, it finds its way into all sorts of different places and it breeds these ecosystems. And I think, you know, we've got to always step back and realize that. And the idea that the gaming world is a framework in which we can understand that, right? It's an abstraction of, of real life. And so looking at Second Life and understanding how you can learn about real life in that environment, I think is fascinating. NFTs and games have been sort of already intrinsically linked. As you've done so many different things since then, how important has that gaming sensibility been to you? So things that would happen in and around that era in Second Life or other worlds. So in Second Life, there were people that by 2006 were making a million US dollars a year by doing work for other people to create digital clothing or build digital things inside Second Life. And then they would sell them, get the linen dollars, and it exchanged them on a little money exchange. And then they were making a lot of income. And people were in World of Warcraft and things like that. People would do the gameplay, win big things, and then sell those on eBay or Meet to exchange things in the virtual world. So it, it's always been a behavior that's been part of gaming, but it's kind of an extension of real life. 
as I started to get more involved in the cryptocurrency world in general, and we started the Necker Blockchain Summit, really around you, Michael, because you know at that year of 2015, the industry, if you could call it that, had fallen into this sort of dark period, kind of. At the start, it was all about the technology and the open source stuff and like intellectual fascination for me. But then the Silk Roads and the collapse in Mt. Gox and all that stuff started to happen. And I was like, man, this is not what I want to be associated with. I said, we got to like lift this up out of the muck. And I said, we need to change the dialogue from Bitcoin and criminals mm-hmm. you know, to blockchain and social good, because there's a lot of other stuff that could be done around this. We asked you to introduce us to Hernando de Soto. Mm-hmm. And he, for those yeah, that- Peruvian uh, economist, yeah, that's- uh, Yes. Yeah. yeah, and for those of you that don't know him, you know, he's a guy that basically wrote an economics bestseller called Mystery of Capital, which defines the fundamental building block of capitalism in the West. And it's kind of, I think the t- subtitle is Why Capitalism Works in the West and Nowhere Else. And it speaks to basically clarity of ownership of an asset, which is basically the description of an NFT. So we wanted Hernando to come to anchor a discussion. Uh, and if the term NFT had been pervasive at the time, we, we might've called it the NFT conference, but we called the Blockchain Summit for Social Good uh, around the idea of taking that aspect of blockchain, meaning the NFT of a land title or an identity, and turning that into a very low friction element in a context where cloud system which could be portable across many countries, not just what he had done in Peru and a few other places, to totally change the world and lift the poor economies up because you basically created economic empowerment around that digital fabric. So, you know, and if you think about Bitcoin in a way, Bitcoin is actually, to me, a subset of NFT, right? Every Bitcoin by itself is kind of an NFT. It's all kind of the same thing. As the world moved forward and we started to look at other things other than just currency, ran into Roam and the Dapper Labs guys. And I was like, wow, this, now this is really pretty interesting and ended up, you know, being an angel in that company. And, and as I funded them, I said, you know, there's a lot more to life than having cat, digital cats that can breathe. Why don't we take this and do something good with it? I said, I will put some money in here, but you got to do one thing for me. And he was like, well, what's that? I said, I need you to make a special cat for an ocean conservation gala that I'm running. And he said, what? <laughs> a cat in the ocean? Like, how does that work out? But we made the Hanu Kitty. It's a beautiful little cute thing. And you can find it on Giphy. There's a couple of versions of it floating around. You can Google search it. It's very, very nice. And we ended up uh, auctioning that off using the proceeds, giving them to Captain Paul Watson to park his ship in front of the turtle nesting area in Antigua. And his folks walked the beaches 24 by 7 for weeks during the peak season so that the eggs wouldn't get, you know, taken and eaten. And, and it was like the first pioneering effort to apply digital NFTs towards ocean conservation. After climbing 1,400% in total value locked last year, DeFi continues to quickly innovate over traditional finance and is on track to become the financial infrastructure of tomorrow. This new infrastructure has unique security needs, and QuantStamp has already secured over $100 billion worth of digital assets for the best projects in the space. Visit quantstamp.com blog to learn why DeFi projects like Maker, Compound, and BarnBridge trust QuantStamp to fulfill their security needs. That's quantstamp.com blog to learn more.
The Insider Protocol presents the first high-frequency trading Bitcoin bot. Our upcoming version 2.0 algorithms are specifically made for our hedge fund clients, but we're making them available for you. Besides going to Binance.Launchpad, the team will be integrating Binance Smart Chain into the ecosystem in the first quarter of 2022. The Insider Protocol is an entire ecosystem of projects consisting of Atlas Dex Swap, a Mimblewimble-based blockchain, DeFi, and our upcoming Dex Change. For more information, visit InsiderProtocol.com. That's InsiderProtocol.com. Well, loved it. I love that your inclination is always to think about how can we do more good for more people and bring awareness to these causes and things like this. I want to pick up on something you said earlier. You mentioned Linden dollars. And just for those who might be familiar, this was the unit used in the currency used within Second Life. Uh, and it actually has exchange value to U.S. dollars. So it actually was a, was a currency that you could not only use to trade and buy things within the um, environment itself, within Second Life, but also actually exit the game. Uh, and this kind of leads to the idea that a lot of these, the things you get within gaming environments actually have real world value. So recently, just a couple of weeks ago, maybe even last week, uh, loot was released, right? This idea that uh, things, items, these unique items that you might own or create, uh, you could kind of create a bag of them and say, look, I've got this list of unique, this unique list of items, and there's a price people are willing to pay for that. Uh, the minimum price at one point was thousands of dollars uh, in ETH, you know, on this thing. And so I'm curious to kind of get your thoughts more broadly on this concept of the metaverse. And then I want to bring in Danny to really talk to us about Infinita, how NFTs play into the metaverse. How do you think about this metaverse concept, which of course is an old sci-fi, you know, idea that goes way back. It's certainly not anything new, uh, but how are you thinking about this in the current environment that we're in? I'll introduce Danny in this discussion too, because, um, Danny is a person that I met in, I think it was around 2013. Is that right, Danny, 2013? That's right. He was running the Stanford Bitcoin meetup groups. Danny is a brilliant character. I mean, he uh, undergrad from Harvard, PhD in computer science from Stanford, running the Bitcoin meetup groups at Stanford at the time. And I met some really interesting characters through him, like Vitalik, when Vitalik was raising money for Ethereum, which I happened to not get at the time, but I passed on it. But there were so many people that I met through Danny that there's just a great ecosystem around him that is very current on really every piece of the, uh, the ecosystem that matters today. As I got to know Danny, like the founder of Zoom and the founder of Canva and these other companies that I've been lucky to fund, I walked up to him one day and I said, Danny, if you ever start a company, I don't care what it is, I'm going to write a check. And so one day, Danny came up to me and said, you know, I'm going to go do that company. And he started a company called MyCoin with uh, backing from me, Jed McCaleb, Bobby Lee, Charlie Lee, the inventor who would go on to invent Litecoin, and, or maybe he had already invented Litecoin. But it was just a, a wonderful group of people that started what today is the largest crypto exchange in Taiwan called MyCoin. And during the, uh, the development of that, he had some other elements of technology that we pulled out into a second company called Blockseer, which is in the same kind of categories, chain analysis and elliptical, where you could literally just take a Bitcoin address, drop it into a search bar, and I could see how many Bitcoins somebody had and every transaction related to that wallet. And that, that technology got used by law enforcement all over the world. But as the uh, projects around NFT and conservation and economic empowerment started to grow, I asked him to automate Hernando de Soto's brain. So after we did that blockchain summit, I introduced him to uh, Hernando and I said, Hernando, we can take everything you've ever done in land titling 
and turn it into a little AI engine with an architecture that allows it to be ported to any country. And we took all of his learnings and mapped them out on a whiteboard, uh, sequential pieces of whiteboard, because there was a lot in his head. And we turned that into an architecture that is actually open sourced. So there was a, a blog post that we did through Bitfury, and I forgot the name of it. And I'll send it to you later, Michael. I, rem but I remember you when actually, you put it out. Yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, you can look at those diagrams. And anyone that wants to go and build an identity management system with a land titling uh, context or cloud, take Danny's work, go for it. But as this world of NFTs started to get its own traction and Dapper had gone on to create a new blockchain flow that was a little more custom designed for NFTs, launched NBA Top Shot, and the world finally caught up to the, our mutual collective thinking on this call from years ago. I was like, Danny, it's time. Let's go and let make that emergent behavior on Hanu Kitty into something grand. And that's how Infinita got started. But Danny, I'll, I'll let you take it from here. Thank you, Bill. Yeah, so we, we wanted to take what Hanu Kitty did, you know, basically kind of a one-off of doing real world good and be able to do it at scale. Right now, the market, I think, is, is ready for that. And we, we started experimenting with different NFTs and also talking to the nonprofits and the collectors and the creators on, you know, what, what could we do? And the question, earlier question was, you know, what are the thoughts about the metaverse, right? And, you know, we, we live in the metaverse. The metaverse isn't just Second Life. Second Life is a metaverse, but really, you know, our, our life is kind of a, a metaverse. And NFTs, right now, mostly it's, it's all purely on-chain and in the crypto space, but there'll be more and more links to the real world. The project we're now, the Soto, you know, was one of those that links to real world. It's like real world land title. And that's also why the project wasn't able to take off because it was really hard to link things to the real world at, at the time. And still is when you need a government and, you know, rule of law and, and basically, you know, forced to, to enforce physical land titles. This mix of, you know, metaverse and real world and this intersection is very interesting. Yeah, let me chime in a little bit more on metaverse, if you mind. So, you know, one of the things that hit me like a ton of bricks through this multi-year journey, there was a moment where I started to think about currencies in general. And it struck me that if you think about the way currencies had evolved over humanity's existence, not just uh, modern civilization and People argue about whether humans have been around for a million years or 400,000 years, or, you know, there's, there's all kinds of opinions on that, but whatever it is, the modern system that we have today with kind of very centralized fiat currencies, it's only been around for a few hundred years or maybe a thousand at most out of maybe a million, you know, so it's kind of like 1% of human history. And even as recently as colonial America, if you imagine a bunch of Europeans on different boats crossing the Atlantic and then getting off and stepping on Plymouth Rock and other places, and they formed all these colonies, you know, whether it's Virginia or New York or Connecticut or whatever it was, every single one of them had its own currency. So what strikes me is that currencies are really just an expression of the economic alignment of interest of communities of interest. And today in the digital world, any of us can be a member of multiple overlapping communities simultaneously because you have different belief systems. And so each of those belief systems forms an ecosystem and each of those ecosystems is its own economy. And so I think all we're really doing today is we're using digital technologies to allow the expression of each of those sub-communities to flourish on its own with communications tools and with video systems like this 
you know, I was with the founder of Zoom two weekends ago on a, just we're hanging out at, on a kite surfing thing. <laughs> and I said, <laughs> it was the weekend before Facebook was about to launch its metaverse thing. And I said to Eric, you want, I said, Eric, do you realize Zoom is already a metaverse? I said, so think about lawyer cat. And if you've ever seen that little um, sequence where yeah. somebody comes on and says, you know, the kid had left Snapchat camera on and he comes yeah. on and he's a lawyer, he's a cat. Poor guy. <laughs> classic. I'm not a cat, I'm a lawyer or whatever he said. <laughs> I said, Eric, you know, effectively Zoom really is its own metaverse and all of us could come on as lawyer cat or anything we want and be in any subsection of the Zoom world. I said, let's just like integrate the interface and create a couple of different rooms that are sort of like different metaverse rooms and you're already there. You know, so we're in a world where second and first life have merged. Yeah, and there really isn't this, the psychological leap to that is, is almost zero. You know, even for people that don't necessarily think of themselves as they don't, what's the metaverse? That sounds freaky. I don't want to be virtual. You know, we kind of already are to your point. And so I think that we're going to see that the uptake on that concept is, is already omnipresent, certainly with digital natives and, and what I call crypto natives next generation. But even I think with that elder lawyer, you know, who found himself in the middle of this hearing suddenly manifesting as a cat, you know, to his, his great dismay and to the rest of our, I think, amusement. Uh, but I want to get back to this concept of philanthropy and an NFT specifically. What is the value proposition for NFTs in this space? Is it really just a fundraising proposition? Like we can kind of trade these things and, and extract some of that value and give it to a charity? Or does it have its own uh, independent value proposition? And I'd love to talk about this in the context of having you introduce us to OnChain Monkey as well. So Bill or Danny, whichever of you wants to, to jump in. Let me in. start and I'll hand it to Danny for the specifics on OnChain. But um, part of how this whole thing evolved was uh, as we were launching the Hanu Kitty, I also registered a bunch of domain names because I was working with Dapper Labs with Seminole in the launch of Hanu Kitty, of course, because it was specifically tied to the CryptoKitties exchange. But I went in registered all these domains, whether it was, you know, crypto primates, crypto giraffes, crypto rhino, whatever, all these things. And I was sitting down with Richard Branson in Morocco. And I said, Richard, I said, you've got that place in South Africa. Ooh, Sabo. I said, do you have any endangered animals on that, on that ranch? And he said, oh yes, we have. And I forgot the exact count, but it was something like, well, I think we have four giraffes. He knew exactly, but it was like maybe four giraffes and five rhinos and two leopards and all these things. I said, are they tagged? Are they individually like unique animals? Of course they are, but are they, is there a record? And he said, well, yeah, of course they're tagged. And we have caretakers that make sure that they get fed and all that stuff. And I said, well, what if we could basically create a second life version or a digital version of each of those and launch those things whereby every time they get bought or sold, some commission goes to the care and feeding of the animal and the property and the caretakers so that there's this living, the NFT becomes a living, breathing representation that takes care of things. Because we've got a lot of species that, you know, in those million or 400,000 years, they all flourished. And in the last hundred, they're all gone. You know, so like all of us used to read these Rudyard Kipling books when we were little. At that era of our, maybe in our parents' generation, they could actually go to the jungle and those animals would be there. But I'll bet the chances are not high that our kids will ever be able to see those in real life, let alone in the wild. So, so I was like, you know, maybe there's a way to capture all this energy from all these communities and actually save some of these things because you give them an economic lifeline and you give them a community of interest that cares that allows them to flourish. And I said, you know, and maybe there's even a way. And right around that time, I think the white, the last male white rhino died. And I was like, wow, you know, what if you could actually just 
get a community to provide the capital through a crypto offering that fuels the return of species. So there's a lot of energy in this community. And if you could just harness that to do good in this world, there's amazing things that can be done if there's collective action. And that's what NFTs and crypto, that's what it's all about. It's the, the economic alignment of interest of communities of interest around a cause. So with that, Danny, you need to build this now. Now's the time. Let's, let's get this going. Let's build the fabric, all the components. And Danny will tell you what he built. Yeah, exactly. So community, I mean, like Bitcoin, right, is valuable because there's a community that believes it's valuable and the use has kind of evolved. And same with Ethereum and now NFTs. Like we see it with the CryptoPunks. Like that was in the, in the last, I mean, since the beginning of the year, it's been exploding. That community has gone really strong. And I mean, so we're thinking, well, this phenomenon is great for communities, for a charitable side. And they have already have strong communities around causes. So if they were powered with NFTs too, you know, that could generate a lot of value for you know, the cause and for the community itself. And so that's what we were trying to figure out how to do it. And it's a hard problem because with charitable giving, there's lots of regulations on, you know, what you can do, what's a nonprofit. And so we were trying to figure that out to do it properly because, you know, anyone can just create an NFT, sell it on OpenSea and say, I'm going to donate 10% to charity. But to really do it at scale properly, that's what we wanted to be able to do we're still figuring this out how we can build a platform that is really smooth, transparent, and easy to use for these uh, communities of, to launch NFTs. And then also just kind of, as what Bill was saying, when there's trade or some activity, some of it automatically goes towards uh, the charities. And there's also the tax benefits for the, the people who donate to the cause. So that, that's the grand vision. And we're still working towards that. And we've done a bunch of experiments around building different NFTs. And so we launched one over a week, this, just this past weekend. And that was on-chain monkey. And it turned out it was a surprise hit. So, you know, it, it built this community, you know, organically because we didn't do any marketing. We sent it and then we basically just told, you know, our, our network that only oh, it's happened, check it out. It's kind of cool. And this community has formed. And so we, we're, we're growing that and gearing it towards building the first model of this community that can take NFTs and also generate good you know, real, real good from that. So I want to drill down a little bit in a moment about, you know, how do we really build this flywheel of working for good, right? Because I think there's the fundraising part of it, but there's also the stuff that Bill was talking to about communities and alignment of interest really between the cause you're interested in. And if you like the, the NFT and the community and the representation of that, that you're passionate about, there's all sorts of ways this could go. But before we do so, let's, uh, let's talk a little bit more about Unchain Monkey because it sounds to me, Danny, as if, one of the problems you had to solve before you deal with all that funky smart contract cool stuff is literally how do you do this in a way that doesn't burn so much into the charity of things like gas fees and the expense of it, right? So we need an efficient process, all created in one single transaction. Explain what that means and how many of them were created and why it was important that there was this single on-chain transaction. Sure. So NFTs are interesting because they're kind of a combination of technology, art, you know, finance, and also this community building aspect. So th this was one experiment where I got into doing this particular one because I, I wanted to kind of combine art and technology first uh, to create like something that looked cool, but also fit within and, and all on-chain. Let me explain what it means to be on-chain. So things on a blockchain, right? They're, they're there permanently. They can't be erased. So if it's on Ethereum blockchain, as long as there's community around maintaining Ethereum, 
in our children's generation, in our grandchildren's generation, it will still be there. They can find you know, these on-chain monkeys, everything about them, including the metadata, the images, you know, every single one of them. And there are 10,000 of them. That's the, the number. And they're all unique with different, different combinations of, of features. So that's not true of all NFTs uh, today. Actually, many of them, the images are not on-chain. They're stored off-chain, uh, sometimes on IPFS, which is good because it's decentralized. But many are even just stored on, on you know, Google server or Amazon servers, which if Google shuts down that server or, or the, the company behind that MT shutdown server, the image is gone, right? The, it doesn't exist even 10 years from now, much less, you know, 100 years from now or so on. And then the single transaction part. So going from the project that are on just NFTs to on-chain, there's already cuts out a lot of the NFT projects. But then all the ones that are on-chain, which aren't, there aren't too many of them, actually, it takes a lot of transaction effort to store all that data on chain. So I want to do it in a very small effort or like basically one transaction. And that was my goal. I wanted to create the whole thing for one transaction. Basically the footprint in the blockchain is very small that way. And also it's a, a kind of a technical challenge to create something interesting in these constraints. And, and also the, the idea that just, you know, you sell one transaction and the whole thing is for is atomic, it's indivisible, it's very simple. Um, when people look at it, they can see everything within there in that transaction. Michael, I'll add some, you know, on the economic front, you mentioned it, right? The depending on the chain you're using and depending on the congestion of the chain you're using, the cost of transacting any transaction changes by, you know, usage and time and all that stuff, but could be very high, right? So we as a company are non-denominational in that we work with several chains. The two, the on-chain monkeys was initially launched on Ethereum. I think our next thing is going to be likely on Flow. And I'll disclose, full disclosure, both Dapper as a company and Roam as an individual are investors in Infinita, along with Charlie Lee from Litecoin and Holly Branson from Virgin Unite and uh, the CEO of Axie Infinity. And Woody the list Harrelson is, as well on the list, I saw. Yes, yeah. Owen Wilson, Woody Harrelson, and Guy Osiri. You know, so there's a lot of people that really want good things in this world around this core ecosystem, they're going to help us spread this, presuming we execute the way we want to execute and should execute. I think to your point about transactions, we want the low friction, low cost, scalable provider of a platform that allows any cause to capture its community's interest to drive it towards action. And, and I think if you think about the way digital marketing has evolved over time, you know, 20 years ago, you probably couldn't have envisioned that every company would have to have a social media manager that, you know, spends their full time managing their Instagram and their Facebook and their Twitter and, you know, all this stuff, right? I think that it's not out of the range of possibilities that you clock forward 10, 15 years, that it won't just be charities, but it'll be basically every brand. You think about what, what is a loyalty program? What is a Starbucks loyalty program? You know, those are little points. They're kind of a currency. To me, that's no different than something expressed on a blockchain that's kind of a currency for that brand, right? So I think that we are going to have a world a few decades from now where every brand, every cause, every charity is going to have something like a social media manager, but it's going to be kind of their own Alan Greenspan for their company, you know, their own Jay Powell managing their reserve currency for their constituencies. 
And that's ultimately what we may evolve to, depending how the little baby steps go, like on-chain monkeys and then, you know, the, the things that you use to manage your monkeys and, and the next flow drop when that happens. You know, I think that there's so much to be said about community management, community creation, right? And one of the things that you're such an expert at is creating and maintaining a very vast network. Now, Michael and I have both heard you talk about the kind of spiderweb analogy you use. I'd love for you to share that here. And just what is kind of your approach to community building? How has that affected the way you think about NFTs, Infinita, like kind of things like this, like the, the points you were just making about this kind of transition we're going to make? Uh, there was a, a funny meme I came through on Twitter that was like, I need a community manager to help me manage my engagement in all these communities, right? Like I'm in so many DAOs or whatever it is. Like I need someone to help me do all of that alone. And that's me personally, you know, helping me do that the way EA might help with other kinds of things like calendaring or whatever. So curious to get your thoughts on, on that, starting maybe with your concept of, of how you think about the building of a network. Yeah, so, so I'll start with the end point first, which was the analogy I use and then lead up to how I got there. Okay, so when people ask me, Bill Ty, what do you do? I, you, you laugh there because I don't know the answer either exactly. But I tell people that, you know what? My life is kind of weird. I basically see myself as a little spider sitting on a gigantic spider web of a lot of people holding hands. And I just hang out on the spider web waiting for a vibration. And there's always vibration. So there's a lot of noise, a little bit of signal. And when I feel like there's a signal, I'll run over there to that spider making that vibration. And if it feels right, I just resonate with it. And then because there's a good trust network around me, all the other spiders that are relevant to that thing will come running over and help. And so it's basically a giant web of economic empowerment or, or just empowerment in general that becomes economic empowerment. And so how I got there is kind of a weird story because I used to be one of these, and still am, a geeky person that would sit on holidays in front of a computer terminal building things, you know? And I didn't really have much interaction with anybody when I was a chip designer, but I had a really good run in the 90s. And in the internet bubble, I was with a venture firm called IVP. And I had my 19th company go public in year 2000, including when I had found it. And I retired to become a kiteboarder. And I ended up as a sponsored athlete. And coincident with then the creation of Facebook, I was in these Facebook groups with kiteboarders. And I started to realize, wow, you know, if Facebook groups didn't exist, I would know the same four people that were willing to get out on the water and nearly kill themselves every day. And that would be my whole universe. That would be it. But now I know people all over the world because there's people in South Africa and there's snow kiters in Norway. There's people kiting in Puerto Rico and Hawaii. And I've never met them, but I can communicate with them and learn about, you know, gear and different things. And then I get on a plane and go visit them. And then eventually we had this worldwide network that then started to pull in all these entrepreneurs and it became this fabric for the economic empowerment of startup people that had the aggressive nature to kiteboard and all these companies like the Canvas and the Zooms and the Rings and the, you know, Tangos and all these things started to come out of it. And I started to realize, you know what, this is actually the way the world should work. It's basically, I'd become a a node on multiple overlapping communities of interest because of the digital fabrics that were evolving in that era. And that if there were a way to just kind of harness that a little bit and tune it a little bit towards the things I was interested in, like economic empowerment and environmental conservation, life would be a lot more fun. That's kind of what happened. That's, I think, where the world is going. So I want to drill down a bit on, the, on how we take this idea into the physical world. I want to come to you, Danny, for, for the technical question, but to lay it up a little bit to start with, right? I, I think there's 
often a lot of dismissiveness amongst uh, particularly hardline sort of Bitcoin maximalist types as well about, oh, blockchain for good is all just this airy fairy stuff because how do you translate all this goodwill into something that is really these bigger problems that go beyond this is one part of that. But the other is like this idea that, okay, you've got a digital world and you've got a digital environment in which these communities can form. And I'm of the belief people don't fully understand how powerful these motivating communities are. If you look at this board ape yacht club phenomenon, it's people who are, I think, identifying in a certain way with these things and having their own version of that one piece of identity to it. And then all investing in the, the sort of expansion of that community, which drives up the value of the NFT. And you can see this incredibly powerful flywheel of creation happen. But what I want to try to understand is how do we go from that and take that into something that inspires the members of that community to actually do things that will then be measured in the positive aspect of what the physical world we want to then come back to the value of that NFT. So you truly get that beautiful flywheel going. And I was thinking about this because I know a friend of mine, Jeff Kirshner, who founded Literati and his project was, was about getting people to collect litter and take photos of their litter around the world. And he created a community around this. And it's a community based around that. And they share all this rich data out of it and everything else. But it was like, okay, what if there was an NFT that was connected to my litter collection that I've connected? And the more I collected that litter, the more its value rises, that there literally is a connection between these two things. And I can think of communities of people who love turtles and people who love elephants and whatever else. How do we do this? How do we get that action and how do we make it actually directly connected to value as it pertains to the nft because if we can fix that problem danny we've we've got a very powerful machine here well i think it has to come from the community and the beauty of what's happening with uh, on-chain monkey right now is that we have discord that's quite active there's ideas part of the channel in there and people are coming up with ideas actually like the idea of picking up trash it is one of one of the ideas that people you know put in there you know if, if they believe that there's value in that. And, and then it's for us, we want to figure out how to connect that right to the on-chain world. I think for this NFT project, right, we, we don't want to be like the copycats of other projects where it just, it's about just drops of new NFTs. We want to really create this economy around giving, turn things around and somehow incentivize like people are buying our NFTs to give it away, to, to donate. So that, that's what we're working on. Right? I mean, we have some ideas and we want to experiment with this collection and this community. And, you know, they've been very supportive. And it's only been a few days where we're just a brand new community that's forming, but around, you know, new ways to create value both for themselves and, you know, NFT value, economic value, but also, you know, doing good in the world. The idea of, of gamifying it, right? I mean, like the idea, anything that's kind of grassroots community generated, there's often a gamification or a game aspect to it where you pick up more trash, you get, you know, more access to monkeys, whatever it might be. There's, there's just some kind of unique item component. You can add whatever to your monkey or whatever it might be. I and mean, these are, these are really powerful concepts that motivate people. And I think anyone who's a parent, you know, definitely understands how gamifying things can create aligned incentives around action, actions you want to see, particularly those that are pro-social. We've been toying with the uh, phrase regeneration, like, or regenerate. There's this notion that I use uh, around karma deficit, which sounds kind of like a negative connotation because it's got that word deficit in it. But I, I tell people that you want to live in karma deficit, meaning that you gave away more karma than you took. And you always have a hole to fill because I think what happens is as you give away karma, it goes out there and grows and then it comes back to you bigger than what you gave away. And I think it's generative in the aggregate sense 
And if everybody lived in karma deficit all the time, it would mean that by definition, the aggregate karma ball would be growing to the extent that they get rewarded through the gameplay, it grows. That's one of the objectives. We kind of go full circle there with uh, bringing us back to gaming where you started talking about Second Life and how this thing all sort of feeds back in a positive loop. So on that note, we're going to have to wrap it, unfortunately, because we're out of time. I want to make some quick back reference, though, because it will demonstrate how powerful this networking effect that Bill's been talking about is, because I mentioned Jeff Kirshner, right? Jeff is, a, as I said, the founder of this wonderful project, Literati. I don't know if you know, Bill, how I know Jeff. Do you know how I know Jeff? Through Jack Brockway? Nope, through Ron Bougainim. How do I know Ron Bougainim? Uh, from the Blockchain Summit. From the Blockchain Summit. Ron is the founder and the leader of, of the GovTech Fund. And just like you, he generously sponsored a book tour of mine when I was in San Francisco a number of years later, uh, where Jeff was present. I met Jeff, got to know these things, right? So this, this comes around, what goes around, pay it forward stuff. It, it's, it's inspiring. I don't, I don't want to sound like the hardened journalist is supposed to be detached from this stuff, but I truly am uh, involved and inspired by it. And I just want to, want to just put that out there. The number of things that came out of our little community on Necker, whether it's uh, the GBBC that was born on Necker mm -hmm. Island or the Blockchain Trust Alliance that was born in the hot tub, uh, you know, the, the music on which, blockchain. Which, which is what led, well, certainly the GBBC is what led Sheila and I to get that's to know great. each other, by the way. That's exactly yeah. right. I would bet that there's at least a dozen organizations or very tangible things, maybe more, that came out of that summit. You know, like the book that Oliver did with, what was that book? Well, which I co-wrote with him. Yeah, The Social, yes. Social Organism, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So lots of projects. Lots of projects. Yeah. yeah that well, Blockchain just... Alliance is a very good one. I mean, so that was instrumental in the lobbying effort with regards to the infrastructure bill recently as well. And yeah. so I think something to note about this, right, is like not unlike Homebrew, which Bill, you were a part of, you know, back in the day. There's something you said for being in the right place at the right time. But of course, it always behooves all of us to make sure that we are creating inclusive environments. We're always bringing in new people. We're always trying to refresh our understanding of what is happening in the ecosystem so we don't wind up in a kind of bubble that talks to itself. And I think that we, in general, try to be very cognizant of that. And I think as an ecosystem, we're very good at that, about bringing in new voices, amplifying them, and constantly shaping our understanding. And I think part of that's because this was a bit, not unlike homebrew, of a renegade space for a little while. Like if you were really in, engaged in crypto, you were kind of a nut. And so we sort of had to have a place for a lot of us to get together, particularly true in massive bear markets when things looked like they were just kind of going to end to some people. Uh, and so there's something you said as a testament to kind of sticking it out and, and then seeing what's been growing, uh, maybe not quite in the light of day, but what's emerged from that. But just want to log the point that, you know, I think one of the things that some of these groups are really good at doing is bringing in people who are really engaging, who are moving full-time to the space. And thereby, I think we're creating a much more inclusive environment than things that have come before. I'm glad you wrapped on that, Sheila, because I didn't want like, to sound like this is just like some sort of inside circle, self-congratulatory club here, because it truly is something that I think, you know, does and needs to keep expanding out in, uh, you know, ever-growing concentric circles. But that is all the time we have. So... Thank you very much, Bill Tai. Thank you, Danny Yang. Thank you very much, Sheila, once again, for being with me on this journey. Thank you, viewers and listeners. Come back again next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. See you later. Thanks. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode features Sheila Warren, Michael J. Casey, Bill Tai, and Danny Yang. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau with announcements by Adam B. Levine. 
Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcasts at coindesk.com or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. 